On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Kojo Bafo of kojobafo.com. I hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Kojo, especially just how frank, open and honest he was about his journey thus far. From creative to multiple entrepreneurial ventures, being a writer, a poet, an editor, a voice amplifier and a creator of space for his own voice. He has an incredible book coming out called Listen to Your Footsteps, which I'm sure in this episode we'll discuss how he arrived at that. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Hi, Kojo. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thanks for having me, Zena. Each episode, I give each guest an intro. And in my mind, those introductions are always a celebration of the work each guest has done. And it's also just a reminder of just your work, right? So Kojo, you're an incredible creative. Um, I've put down multipreneur, even though you don't say that about yourself. Um, a writer, a poet, an editor, and a Sherlock Warlock of content and giving space and place to not just only your voice, but other people's voices. How did I do? I think that's cool. It's always weird hearing about yourself, but I think for me, the most important part of what you said was that last part about, about kind of finding a space for my voice as well as the voice of others because i've done i've worked in kind of multiple sectors and in multiple industries over the years you know having started off working with my father in lesotho in a management consulting company but because i've been kind of through so many different spaces i don't define myself by let's call it my job title the work i do and each one of those kind of feeds into or fits into I guess, who I am as a person. You know, having been raised by a Ghanaian who grew up during the lead up to independence with very kind of Pan-African ideals and Pan-African views. Mm. Yeah, I guess a large part of kind of my personal cause and my personal mission is is being able to ensure that, you know, my voice as an African and the voice of other Africans is heard, particularly in a world that is so noisy. Mm. Agreed. Before we really delve into the episode, and you've touched on a number of things that I really want to get stuck into, we both have a shared love for Skunk and Nancy. Yes, I love skin. And I want to tell you that we went to the same university. Are you serious? I just, I just, I just, I actually just finished uh, Skin's uh, biography. Oh, how was it? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm, I'm a huge fan of kind of biographies and autobiographies because um, when it's done well, it puts you into, it unwraps the kind of the veil that is often over people's lives. And what I enjoy about musicians ones in particular is that usually when I'm reading, so when I was reading Skins, I was listening primarily to her music and Skunk and Nancy's music. I just finished the Sam Cooke one. So I did like, 
I, I did a couple of days of just like Sam Cooke and music from that era or Lenny Kravitz. I also just finished Lenny Kravitz's. And the same thing. It's like, that's what I love about kind of biographies, especially with musicians, especially when it's musicians whose music incorporates so much of them. When their music is, is transparent. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's not very obvious, but when you're reading and you're listening to the music, you start seeing the connections. A hundred percent. Or even just when your life circumstance mirrors what's happening in a song. And then you realize, even though like in, in that moment, you think, oh my God, like how unique am I? I'm going through these trials and tribulations. And then you find a song that basically is exactly your emotion. You know, through lockdown, music has been a huge therapy for me throughout lockdown because it's so interesting the role music plays in our lives, in our mood. And I'm with you on on just finding parallels. I haven't read a biography recently. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm trying to upskill creatively, like the academics behind creativity. That's my um, my current vice. I find creating just gives me like a sense of achievement because then there's, a, there's an element of challenge to it and, and, and then being able to conceptualize and then achieve what you conceptualize is, is fun. But I digress. Two things popped into my head, right? So from the reading perspective, I'm usually reading two, three books at the same time. And I also read because I read for entertainment, not just kind of for knowledge. Sometimes it's good to jump from, you know, like I'm reading letters of, I think it's called the Tower of Seneca, which is, you know, letters from one of the Stoics, Seneca. At the same time, I'm reading a Terry Pratchett book. When the heavy mind stuff gets a bit too much, then I'll switch to Terry Pratchett because that I'm reading that for the enjoyment of reading. And also kind of biographies is something that I always go back to just because I'm fascinated by, I guess, people and people's lives, particularly the people that the people that interest. So, I mean, that was the one part, the one thing that popped into my head when you're talking, for example, like reading and that sort of stuff. But the other side is I've always believed that we create soundtracks to our lives, right? And I've written about it like quite a bit, like on my blog and other spaces where, you know, over a lifetime, you're literally creating this, this playlist that has, like, if you're like me, I mean, I'm always playing music. So it's like millions of songs. And if you put on a song, it'll take me to a particular moment. So, I mean, so for example, I, I was trying to do this regularly. So I wrote a blog post on uh, Roots Maneuver's song, Colossal Insights. And when I hear that song, I hear anything from Roots Maneuver, I'm immediately taken back to 2006. I did a poetry tour of the UK. And at a random show in Newcastle, somebody said, oh, Roots Maneuver's DJing at a club that that night no way so i literally after the poetry show i went to this club i think it was called headquarters and roots maneuver dj and also kind of rapped playing his own backing tracks so whenever i think of roots maneuver it immediately takes me to that place and that period and that experience because like we did 13 cities in 14 days you know i got to drive around the uk there were all kinds of different experiences uh, so immediately the music takes you there. And so I believe that that's what we do. And and sometimes the more interesting thing is whatever the intention of the the musician or whatever the intention of the songwriter was or whatever space they were in, it doesn't always imply that you are going to interpret the exact same thing from it. This is true. So you can have the saddest song being 
you know, a song of celebration just because you and a friend or you and a family member had an amazing experience on a car drove by and that song was played. And for some reason, like the bass line just reminds you of that moment. And that's the song that marks that experience. Yeah. Uh, are those, those lovely, what are those birds called? The huge, huge birds in Joburg. Uh, Hardy does. Yeah. Oh lordy lord, and they <laughs> and they poop they poop a ton as well. <laughs> well, fortunately, fortunately, I don't get that in my garden, but yeah, we get them from early. They wake you up early. We used to get the poop as well, and they would literally in your sleep. Grr, grr. <laughs> when I first moved to Johannesburg, I couldn't believe it. I was, and they're so huge, and then they would fly by and then poop, and the poop's like horrible. Um, it's like grayish, grayish stuff. Um, uh, memories. Oh, there they go. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I can't do anything about the that. benefits of living in Africa with nature. Let's put it that way. You've got nature sounds for free. You don't have to subscribe on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and and living in what is what the largest man-made forest in the world. Johannesburg is the most, I think, the most treed city in the world. Which is great. Throughout lockdown, I have missed not being able to come to Joburg. Hopefully soon, when, when the world is safe again, we'll all get some mobility back. You briefly mentioned your dad and, and working with him. And I guess starting off with early years, essentially, you got a lot of success really early on. And success being, you know, in parentheses, I, I guess you and I can discuss or try to extend into that word for you what what that means and and how it looks but you know through working with your dad who is you know successful who is a successful entrepreneur but a diplomat turned businessman in that transition if if you don't mind sharing more about just how that came about i guess it was it was more academic ten, turned entrepreneur um so he you know, originally from Ghana, ended up in Germany in the early 60s or mid 60s and eventually settling there and then studying, doing economics and I think political science and African studies and that sort of stuff and then lecturing. And then after that, kind of ending up in Uganda at Kampala, Makerere University um, during Amin's times, lecturing there and then eventually settling in Lesotho when I was quite young. And he lectured in Lesotho as well as Swaziland for a bit. I guess the the key thing was when I was about 11, 12 years old, he left teaching to go into business. And that was also kind of at the age where I started, you know, going to the office, fetching the post, going to the bank during holidays and, and kind of just doing errands and working in that space. So by the time I was 15 years old, I was often doing my father's research for him. I guess being brought up by academic who went into entrepreneurship, I learned a lot about, let's call it the world of business from him. I was constantly working during holidays and stuff. So I learned quite a bit from that. But I guess the incident or the moment that kind of shaped a lot of my life since then from a professional perspective was when I was about 15, 16 years old, he was like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? You know, my answer was, I want to do what you do. And when he asked me what that was, I said, well, from my understanding of what a management consultant does, I was like, you will, you help other businesses become better. And, and so at that moment, my degree was decided and the subjects I was going to study were decided. I followed that path. So I mean, I did a Bachelor of Commerce. I majored in economics, marketing and business administration. But I did like two years of commercial law. I did two years of business information systems. 
I call myself a professional jack of all trades. I did enough of the different subjects to have kind of a basic working foundation from it. I guess what helped was that although my father had a particular background, I did not specialize intensely in any particular area. And even our businesses, I mean, when I was in university, I used to go home once a month from, I was in Durban. So I used to go from Durban to Maseru. I used to go home once a month because we had a retail shop setting hair products, cosmetics, and hair salon equipment. So I'd go home once a month to do stock takes and just make sure that everything is running smoothly. And if I needed to, I'd drive to Joburg quickly to pick up stock and go back. At some stage, we had an insurance brokerage company. We had a clothing shop. And I was trained, or how he trained me, was more how business principles apply regardless of what your product or service is. And I guess that's also what's made me seemingly flaky and commitment phobic when it comes to sticking in any particular industry or any particular career. Um, so I've been, I mean, I've been a book at an actor's agency. I've worked with a um, small record label. I've worked with a fashion designer. I was a project manager at the South African post office. I'm on a public franchising project. I started an IT consulting company when I moved to Joburg and I worked with a cousin of mine on his furniture company. Yeah, I mean, I, that's just a couple of things. And then I was a poet and I used to run shows. And I was going to say, you were a poet. Um, you were the editor of Destiny Man, which is... South Africa's GQ. Well, yeah. Well, yes and no, because GQ is here as well. Uh, yeah, but I feel like it was definitive, especially for, I would say, people of color. Hmm. GQ doesn't translate the same in the South African space. It was one of the only, let's call it, fully locally developed and produced publications because most of the other ones are usually either licensed or, you know, it's international brands that have a presence in the country. And so they still control a lot of what goes in or what the magazine looks like. You mentioned your dad is Ghanaian and your mum was German. And I have a question here around growing up, obviously in apartheid era, as a mixed race child, because the layers of South Africanism around that and to give everyone a, a sort of a little bit of a timeline of, you know, where you were born and then you leaving, re-entering into Africa and, and, and that transition. So I've spent most of my life in Africa. So I was born in Germany. My mother and father moved back to the continent when I was probably six, seven months. And when I was one, um, and we were in Uganda. My mother passed away in a car accident in Uganda. So sometime between then and when I was three years old, my father and I moved to Lesotho. And Lesotho is where I grew up. So even my, as weird as it sounds, my experience of apartheid in South Africa, my father was banned in South Africa for most of my life. Up till I was tw in my 20s, I knew the airport because every Christmas I used to get shipped off to well, not shipped off. I mean, it sounds negative, but I used to go visit. I, I used to be put on a plane to go visit relatives in Germany. And all I knew was the airport. Like landing in, you're not allowed out, you're in transit. You know, traveling as a child, then, you know, you've got a little bag around your neck and you're passed on from person to person. And so the first time I started kind of engaging with South Africa, even like driving up to Joburg for the weekend, I was what, 18, 19 years old. So for anyone who, who doesn't have context as to why your father possibly could have been banned, 
So from what I understand, when he was an African student in Europe, I mean, they had the African Students Association and those generations were fighting for their space within those spaces. So there was that. And at the same time, a lot of his relationships, even in Lesotho, were with people who were, for example, in the ANC and different political, different kind of political movements. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was in the early 80s, he because we used to drive through South Africa to go to Swazi from Lesotho. So, but in the early 80s, he went to Cuba. After that, I think the the ban became even more stringent. So, I mean, I shared my father's names. I have the same first name. And for me to cross the border was always a mission because they'd see the initials and they'd go and check. They had this very thick file with all kinds of information and they'd pull out the file and look at the photograph and only then would I be allowed to drive across. It's because of all of those things. I guess you know, he was an Nkrumahist, he was a Pan-African, and apartheid was one of the most efficient and effective systems one could ever create. They knew everything about everyone to a certain extent. You were then raised by a single parent. Yeah. You say yeah. your dad was a, was a single working dad. So I have an older sister. Uh, my father was married before. So my older sister, when we moved to Lesotho, my older sister came down to Lesotho. And my father did remarry in Lesotho. So I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. But in essence, he's been my, well, he was my only parent until 2016. Um, so, yeah, I was by and large raised by my father. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's weird because my siblings have their mothers. And my older sister, her mother recently passed away. So they always had their, you know, their mothers were there. So it was always like a weird thing to like sit in between that. But we were also raised as a family unit. So it was, it was always like my father and his tribe. Taking that and trying, as you said, you know, being jack of all trades or, or not having a reluctance to trying new things you know like you said you've done everything from music to fashion to it consulting would that driver be monetary success or you know getting the role with destiny man for instance and really carving out that space as it where it's you know even bigger than one of the biggest male publications to the audience that it was serving what would you say the driver for you to continue to try to continue to test the limits, to continue to, you know, one day wake up and decide I'm going to be a poet. You know, this is the career of choice. Well, it's not financial because in all honesty, I'm still far from that. Financially, like life has been up and down. Like financially, life has been like the typical image of an entrepreneur's life. There's good moments, there's bad moments. When the bad moments are there, they tend to be very deep and very long. Because of that, I had to also kind of revisit and create a different idea or definition of success for myself. And so the thing that drives me to do the different things, I guess, first of all, because I'm not constrained by, okay, this is my career or this is what I'm trying to build. And my focus is on the lifestyle I want to be able to provide for my family, right? And everything else is to a certain extent, a means to an end. And sometimes it's, okay, this is what's in front of me. This is what's here right now. So do I feel like this thing is going to take me there or at least a step closer? So I didn't go. So when I went to Destiny Man, I went into Destiny Man going, this is a three to five year project, right? I didn't go into Destiny Man going, okay, well, I'm going to now be the editor of this business and lifestyle magazine. And this is, if I can, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next 
30 years of my life and I'm going to build that. It was just like, you know, like this is three to five years. In that period, I'll see where I am and then make a decision. And when I got to four years, I was in a particular place and I was like, actually, it's not working for me anymore. Therefore, I am leaving. I left without a plan. There were certain things that were going on and it was having an impact that my kids were young. I was never home. I was always traveling. I was always tired. I was always irritable. And I'm like, this can't be why we work, right? I was like, I don't see success as being, I'm working for my family, but I'm never there for my family. So what exactly am I doing? Right? And therefore made the decision to leave just because I reached the point where it just wasn't sustainable anymore. And I left without a plan. I guess being able to jump through all these spaces and, and also kind of knowing that I'll one way or another, I'll always land on my feet does make it easier to jump onto the next thing or, or grab the next opportunity because I'm not trying to build a career. You know, I'm not trying to work my way up any type of ladder. Like I'm trying to live my life sitting on a beach resort in Ghana, right? <laughs> and, and spending my time writing and working on projects that I want to work on. So if I want to do a podcast, then it's like, okay, well, I'll do a podcast from there. And why am I doing the podcast? Because I want to. I've, I've always wanted to, or I want to give a voice or whatever it may be, right? I hear you on the mission of joy and purpose and it being less external and more internal. Yeah. Look, I've spent a lot of time in the last five years working Let's call it working on me and realizing that that's what I need to do. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, but for me personally, it's like that's actually what I need to do because if I won the lottery tomorrow, if I haven't done that work on me, then, you know, it doesn't matter if I have financial success or whatever else is, you know, whatever else is out there, I'll never be able to enjoy it because, because you're constantly looking for the next thing. Whereas, like, my destination is my life looking a particular way. And it's not, you know, everything else is a means to that end. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. I guess when, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, which is always quite interesting, you know, navigating for most people, I don't think they realize how they travel up that pyramid. Because, you know, at first is your physiological needs, basic food, water, oxygen, and then it's all about safety, you know, work, money, your routine, what's familiar. And then you start to look at love and belonging. Yeah. What groups are you a part of? Acceptance, affection, love. And then it's esteem needs. It's like, how competent are you having the self-esteem, the self-respect? And then it's cognitive needs, right? So it's all about knowledge and understanding and the need for meaning, predictability. And then there's the aesthetics of it, right? Creativity, design, art. And then lastly, it's always that self-actualization yeah. where you become everything or, or someone that is becoming yeah. not to steal, you know, Michelle Obama's becoming, but <laughs> essentially that is the journey. Most of us 
walk through in terms of, I guess, our hierarchy of needs as humans in, in as primitive or as definitive as it could possibly be? I think the important thing is also recognizing that sometimes like we're moving up and down, right? It's not linear, yeah. You know, sometimes you're worried about safety while worrying about kind of esteem. So it's all happening kind of at the same time. 100%. And I guess, you know, everyone wants to be Gandhi and, and live in self-actualization. Um, but the reality is, uh, or um, Deepak Chopra, or, you know, these great spiritual leaders who teach or, or teach you how to aspire to. But these journeys are individual. And I, I wanted to come back to your time at Destiny Man and making a clear decision to walk away from a role, one which was, you know, being an editor of a highly successful magazine means you are setting the tastes of a generation or a group of people that comes with a level of success, a level of power, a level of influence. I remember bumping into you and you, you know, casually had just told me you had been loaned a car for like a week or two weeks that you had been test driving. And I just thought, what a life, you know, like these are, and, Hearing you now speak about actually how that was compromising your life at home because you were always traveling, you were never around or you were irritable, et cetera. Just to speak a little bit about, I guess, in that space, because most people aspire to this level of success, right? To then have had it and four years in go, actually, this isn't the career for me and walk away with no plan. How does that happen and where in that process from, you know, being able to be given almost anything, because I own a brand, brands want to be in the hands of tastemakers, because the upside or the hope is that you can then influence others to buy into, you know, the dream. But yeah, I'll, I'll let you answer that question. The thing about that is recognizing that it wasn't about me. The, let's call it the perks. And the perks and the privileges were not about Kojo Buffer that sits and looks at me in the mirror every morning. It was my job title. So I always used to joke and say, I get invited to these places. Well, my job title gets invited to these places. Unfortunately, I have to go with. Mm. Because just as quickly, and I've, even before I got to Destiny Man, I edited a magazine called Black for a short while. And then I also wrote for City Press. But when I left Destiny Man, my invites dried up. Like they went from, let's say, 100 invites to five <laughs> in, in like a two, three-week period, right? So people are not interested in me. Like people are interested in what I can do for them. So as long as I'm perceived to be of value or of use, I'll get the perks. But the minute I am no more seen to be of value, then the perks go. Now, for whatever reason, and I'm grateful for it, I never measured my worth on the basis of my job title. Because imagine if I did. Like, imagine what that, what that would have done to me as a human being to go from all the attention and all the perks to zero. And I see that with so many young people, right, who are using, whether it's social media following, it's like numbers, you're using all those things as the basis for their self-worth. And the problem is that you, the minute you take that away, the proverbial existential crisis comes. Yeah. So for me, it was, 
I always recognized that. Like, I always understood that, look, this is really about my role. And I will do the same things. Like, if I'm interacting with a brand and it's something that interests me, I'm just as happy to support what you're doing and try and share what you're doing because I like it or I buy into it, right? Because I recognize that you're coming to me because this is what I can provide you. And to a certain extent, if I buy into it, well, great. Like, I get some free stuff as well, you know? But it was never called the core of what I did and the core of what I did. And when you say that, you know, had a measure of influence, it's also particularly from an African perspective. And particularly when you talk about black people or people of color, it was also a responsibility within a country, although I'm not from the country and I came here as an adult, but there's a responsibility in terms of So first of all, Destiny Man wasn't a black men's magazine. It was a business and lifestyle magazine that, if you want to be politically correct, reflected the demographics of the country. So our reference point, because the majority of this country is black, our reference points and our context needed to be from that. So you don't talk about ethnic hair, you talk about hair. And if you want to differentiate, then you'll say Caucasian hair, because hair is, you know, let's call it in inverted commas, black hair is the norm, is the standard. And that's a reversal of what's happened in the media the world over, and to a certain extent continues to happen in the media the world over. So those are the things that I had to take into consideration. The stories or profiles of black men and you know, profiling a scientist or a mathematician or a businessman, because the what's it, the overriding narrative globally is one that is negative. And that's where I guess my kind of pan-African upbringing came in, where it's a responsibility to start to change that narrative or to give a different narrative, to show that we're not one-dimensional or multi-dimensional, we're not homogenous. And therefore, these are the different versions of who we are. And so that's what I considered my real work. Everything else was a perk. Everything else was a bonus. It's almost like having the confirmation. And I think, before I jump into the next thoughts, we have this challenge especially in our culture where, you know, you are your work. You are now Oga because you're a minister or you've achieved a position and you become better than or considered better than because you've had success in your work, your professional life, whether that's financial success or if that's success from, you know, having an influential role, we have this challenge around being your work or your title. And for the most part, that is the aspiration, be a doctor, accountant, lawyer, because historically those are the roles that meant that you had influence in your community and thus respect. And so the aspiration was never really, and if you think of the subtext, how do you become a good person? How do you create voice or space for voices. It was, how do you aspire to be a person of influence within your community? Now, when you take that away and go, actually, but that's not me, but you're living in a world where that is the case. One, how do you navigate it too? Was that part of the fatigue of the role? So how I navigate it is, I don't think about it much. It's the way I was raised. 
it's my father. So my father, yes, within the Lesotho context and, and other spaces, his legacy is the impact he had on people's lives. But when I look at that impact, it was not on the basis of the fact that he was a business person. It was the basis of him and what he actually did. And so growing up with that as the example, and also then kind of jumping between spaces, because I started jumping between jobs when I was still in Lesotho. Like, I mean, I left university and within a month of having left university, I had a business card that said assistant managing director of Buffer and Associates Management Consultant. And I'm just like, yo, man, like you want a title and you want a business club? That's easy. Like you literally just walk into a place and maybe because I was exposed to it so early, like you just, you go and you register a company and now it's even easier. Like to register a company, it's a couple of, you know, clicks online, it's a couple of pounds, it's a couple of dollars, it's a couple of, I mean, even rands, it's like less than 200 rands, right? And there you have a company and you have a job title. Like you can give yourself a job title. The number of CEOs that exist on LinkedIn are amazing. Uh, <laughs> because I was exposed to that from an early age, it's never been anything I've, I've sat and thought about. And in terms of the fatigue with Destiny Man, it was, I mean, there were a couple of things. Some I would speak about and some I wouldn't. But I had reached a point where I wasn't very happy. And I wasn't very happy also because of some internal stuff. And it just got to the point where something was going to break, something had to give. And it was either I was going to be the thing that gave. Mm. I just reached that point. And, and yes, a large part of it had to do with, you know, not being there for my, my kids. I mean, my daughter was born when I was there. Her and I did not have a relationship until she was two years old. I was this person that she saw in the mornings who used to drive her to kindergarten or crash. And then she wouldn't see me again until... Maybe she woke up in the middle of the night because I was also, I tended to be up because that's when I do a lot of my writing. And on weekends, I'd be home. But one day I also realized that my family were living or I was living a parallel life to my family. Like I'd wake up on a Saturday morning and they'd be like, okay, bye. I'm like, oh, what's, what's, what's going on? It's like, no, we're going to so-and-so as the way of my cousins for the day. And I'd be like, okay, cool. And I'd sit at home and I'd write and maybe watch some football because that's the one thing that I've always done. That's just for me. But literally it was like, at some point it was just like, nah, this can't be it. This is not what you've worked so hard yeah. for. Like this, this cannot be the end. Yeah. And it's not like I was making the kind of money where I'm like, you know, let me stick it out for like another couple of years because after this, I'll never need to work ever again in my life. You know, I'm still hustling like everybody else I'm still dealing with all the things that everybody else is dealing with so it's like well if it's taking away from me as a person and it's not filling up my bank accounts then why keep doing it regardless of the perks right yeah the perks are the perks like they give you the car but they take it back and you must still put in petrol in your own car like they <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like my standard line has always been I can't pay school fees right now, but look, here's some amazing fragrances. Well, you know what's so interesting, right? I came across an article which was actually speaking about influences and how influences have, you know, for the lack of a better word, a side hustle, selling on a lot of the free stuff that they get. Um, and that's additional income because they, they have to wear these clothes and take the pictures, but there's only so many clothes and as you say, fragrances and things. And so these guys go off and, you know, have eBay accounts and, and sell on those goods for, for monetary gain. 
ethically, there's a question around it, uh, you know. But Look, I can buy my own clothes. If I want a fragrance, I can buy my own fragrances, right? And I'm by no means a money-obsessed person, but it's like also I need to make sure that my kids are fed and can go to school. And like I've never wanted to be an, a Gandhi because I like nice things and I like enjoying nice things. There's just not a lot in comparison to, and I, I don't go out just for, you know, just for those things, but I do like nice things. At the same time, it's like, you know what, let's rather have a, a straightforward kind of business agreement. I will do this. You will pay me for that service, whatever that service or product looks like. Like I've had people dangle trips. It's like, oh no, we'll, we'll fly you to such and such a place and you'll get to meet so-and-so. And I'm like, look, First of all, to go to those places, I'd rather go with my family. Like, I want them to experience it. And going to meet so-and-so, unless so-and-so, when I get there, is going to tell me, listen, I've got school fees covered for the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> like, in, in all honesty, it makes absolutely thanks. no difference. Thanks, in my, but no thanks. Yeah, like, I'm, and, I'm with you. And I've turned stuff down. Like, I've turned stuff down where they go, what do you mean? I'm like, do you know what? I can actually introduce you to somebody for that. You know, and and I had a friend go. Listen, I wanted you to come on the thing. I wanted you specifically. So rather you tell me what you can and can't do. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I can do this. I can't do that. They're like, okay, great. But to use it as a carrot, yeah. And I'm too old for that. I guess the saying to thine own self be true, right? I think ultimately that is an understanding that you know we all try to reach or achieve. I want to talk briefly about your career as a poet. You know, you mentioned touring as a poet. And I guess with lockdown, we found, by and large, a lot of the world starting to respect writing. Well, fingers crossed. I'm still out here hustling writing work, yeah. I know you have a book, (laughs) you're working on a new book. But I feel as though, as we've had more time to sit within, and we've had literary successes like Chimamanda and things like that come through, right? We're now seeing the sort of work that you did 10 years ago, for instance, come to the fore and have value. I have two questions. So you can tell me a little bit about life as a career, like job poet. And then the second question sort of relates to the evolution of content and the closing of the gaps with content within our unique space. Okay, so the poet thing, because the irony is that your second question is what ended the first question. Mm. So the poetry was something that I've always kind of written. Well, I mean, I started, I was brought up in the kind of household where you're told, if you want to make sense of something, put it down on paper. So I always did that. Like, I always kind of wrote my thoughts down. And then at some stage, it became, you know, sentences became short. And I was like, oh, those are poems. I mean, all the, all the while going through my IGCSC and hating doing poetry in class, right? And, and hating Shakespeare and Thomas Hardy and all this other stuff. But I found a place for me within that form. And for years, I wrote purely for myself. It was literally kind of like, I guess, my version of therapy. And then like my high school girlfriend, I'm told she still has boxes of stuff, but she refuses to send it to me. <laughs> but, you know, I used to write poems for like my high school girlfriend, so the proverbial high school sweetheart. But in, I think it was like 98, 99, I'd moved to Joburg and I was spending more time here. And I was supposed to meet some friends and they said, look, come to this place. And I get there and it's a poetry night. And I discover that... 
you can just put your name on a list and people will let you go stand up on a stage and mumble some words. And because I'd always written, I started getting involved in the scene then, started running shows. I actually published, I self-published with help from my father, my own two collections about 2005. It was just an interesting time because also within South Africa's history, you had a generation that, that was starting to come of age and, and starting to deal with a very different South Africa from the one that their parents had grown up in. And so I became kind of part of that little movement. And at the time, I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, let me just, let me approach it the way I approach anything else. Like... Let me build something around it. So running the shows, looking for sponsorship. The touring was just a by chance thing. I did a couple of shows in Botswana. I took some poets to... So in Botswana, it was just because I had a friend of mine living there the one day and he phones me. He phones me on a Friday night to say, hey, listen, I think there's a poetry thing happening here tomorrow night. And I literally just jumped in my car on a Saturday morning and drove the what, three and a half hours to Botswana to go check it out and build relationships and friendships there. Touring the UK, it was the early days of MySpace and blogs. And I got to know a guy based in Oxford who said, look, I'm going to try and put together this four continents poetry slam with poets from, what was it? Africa, Europe, the Americas, and what's it? Um, Australia, New Zealand, or Oceanus, I think. And, and so, yeah, just randomly... He got some money to buy us plane tickets and we got on a plane and went and, you know, did shows around around the UK. And I mean, from the organized way, we're in a little theater to walking to a pub on a Saturday night in Glasgow and and having a year, a year fight with the guys who run the band because they didn't realize that there was a poetry thing happening there that night. As you do, as you do. Ending up at a party after that with... I guess a stereotypical Scott with red hair and a red beard at a party in a flat in the middle of Glasgow talking hip hop. For a while, I said, okay, if I'm going to do this thing, let me just kind of do it right. And I tried to apply my my business mind to it. But then, yeah, man, I got married. We wanted to have children. We eventually had children. And it's like, you can't, it just wasn't sustainable. That's kind of gradually what not force me, but prompted me to start to drift away from poetry. I mean, I tell people I'm a retired poet and people seem angered by it. I'm like They're like, you, you, you can't retire. And I'm like, well, I was the person who decided one day that I'm a poet. So why can't I also then decide one day that I'm no longer I'm one? Retired? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of poetry. And look, there are people that I was around that have stuck to it and have done quite well within this space. But it's also not something that you can do on its own. I have enough poems for about two, three books that I've written over the years. And in the book that I'm writing now, I will have some poems in it. It's more a collection of essays and reflections, but I also do have some poems in it. And yeah, every now and then I'll post some poetry on Instagram and that sort of stuff. So it'll always be kind of part of who I am. Part of the journey has been kind of getting back to the space where it, I write poetry just because it's something that I enjoy doing and it has a space and it's not okay, I need to make a living off this. If anything, 2020 taught us, and, and we're now in the new year, is that a lot of us have had a lot of time to sit with ourselves, to to navigate the voices you try and keep quiet by being busy through your career, through work, through you know company, through friendships, through relationships. 
you know, I guess there are reports that say, you know, mental health and all of these different challenges. And, and you've had your journey through and quite openly so about your journey through navigating self mm. and how you've been able to do that. And you've had a period of having to battle addiction yeah, and finding your way from that or through that. Like we don't speak about it enough. And I think it's it's more commonplace than we would like to admit that people face all of these challenges. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about, I guess, that journey and even just coming to the realization that, hey, something is up here that I, I need addressing? It is a journey. And, and I guess my approach or my view of it tends to be, what's the word I'm looking for? So because I've already done a lot of that work, right? And because I've had certain experiences along the way that have brought me to where I am today, so like the last year with lockdown and all of those things, I had my moments literally September, October. And my moments were really about work because I haven't been working, my, I'd say, over the last year, which it has its own impact in dealing with that. Yeah, challenges. But also having grown up in an entrepreneur's house and having been one myself for many, many years, I'm also better wired to the phone calls, right? So when the bank phones me, I'm just like, yo, man, I ain't got it. I'm not trying to run away from you. You got my details because I've been doing this for a couple of years, right? But also I'd say the starting point is also a, and I write about this in my book quite a bit. So this is like a mini plug. listen to your footsteps (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it's my mini plug for my upcoming book but also the the beauty of the book is that i've been submerged in all all of this because it is a reflection on my journey today so growing up in a small town where hold on before you go in correction when you say you haven't been working for the last year you've been working on a book for the last year. But. Yeah, but I always have things to do. The problem is that majority of the things that I do don't actually pay the bills. So it's all, they're all nice and dandy. But <laughs> <laughs> when, when the bank is phoning you tomorrow, this is the, the problem. I don't, I don't know if it's a problem, but like I'm involved in the lo- relaunch of a website in a media platform, but it's pro bono. So it's like, great. When you look at it from the outside, it's fulfilling. But yeah, when the missus is looking at me going, yo, man, so (laughs) (laughs) what are we actually doing? And I can't go, well, I've got this, which is an amazing project. Let me rather say, I haven't been working for money for the last year. Well, Um, writing a book, you get an advance and it's an income. Uh, Yeah, that advance went even before it arrived. (laughs) 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 Like, uh, it it didn't even sprinkle sand at the end of the hole. It was like a couple of cups. And and I'm glad you say that, honestly, because the, the general misconception with a lot of people, especially now as writing a book is very high on a lot of people's lists, is that everyone assumes that writing a book equals, you know, lots of money. And the assumption of what that advance looks like, I, you know, write the column for happy and, you know, write a few things, but knowing the time it takes, it doesn't necessarily, like you don't write a book for money. No, you don't. Because there's not, there's not much in it. Like, and I'm glad you said that. So thank you for for being honest about that. I would like to add, which earlier on we were talking about something like I wanted to say, so I'm a working writer, which means that. I depend on writing to 
feed myself and look after my family. Like I do other things, but like I write for clients, right? So, I mean, I was writing for an entrepreneurship website. So every week I have to churn something out and then they pay me for it. When I don't have the clients, so I consult in the content space, right? So I consult, which I was going to touch on in your second question. Like I consult in the content space. So I work with, I work with brands. I work with corporate in terms of developing their content platforms, right? So also there's two parts to it and you asked the question around content. So I've always struggled with this idea of content because like I'm, okay, I'm a writer and I'm, let's say I'm a working writer and I write across different spaces. So how I've been able to divide it in my head is when I'm doing stuff for brands, that it's content. When I'm doing everything else, I'm writing. It's called it storytelling and it's not a hard and fast definition and somebody else could probably find holes in it. But this is kind of how I look at it in my head, right? There is a misconception around writing, around the arts, etc. And, and this idea that, okay, well, you're probably making lots and lots of money. And because we're seeing, let's call it the rare exceptions, a Chimamanda, a Teju Cole, a Zadie Smith, etc. But if you look at them, they're writing multiple things. Because they need to do the multiple things to be able to create that one kind of whole, which is why you find a lot of writers in academia, because academia ensures that you're paying your bills and you can live because, like you were saying, the writing doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily do it for the money. And if it comes, great, it's a bonus, but it's, it can't be the reason why you actually go into it. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm learning about writing a book. I've always had, uh, to a certain extent, imposter syndrome when it comes to writing a book because I'm like, can I really call myself a writer because I've never actually written a book? You know, I've written thousands or at least thousands or hundreds of thousands of words for different spaces. But then, then a part of me would go, yeah, but I've never actually written a book. And now going through that journey of even writing a book is is fascinating for me because like I sent my second manuscript, well, my second draft of the manuscript to my publisher yesterday. I uh, said like a true writer. But my first draft had eight versions to it. So everybody's like, and I even said to the publisher, everybody's like, I was like, you know what? I feel a bit strange sending this thing because the overriding emotion I have is anxiousness. But because I worked in magazine, you know, somebody's going, yeah, you sent a manuscript. And I'm like, what? In a magazine, like the articles come back in, they must still go to the sub editor, they must still go for layout. And then after all of that, it must still be looked at by five people. So I don't feel like, okay, this is, it's a milestone, but I don't feel it's like a major milestone. But at the same time, I recognize that I need to actually celebrate these moments. So it's like a very weird mixed up jamboree space to be in but yeah at the end of the day by and large and i'm the thing that the pandemic has taught me although i've I've done a lot of that work um and i did a lot of that work because i so i grew up in a small town where you drank like that's what you did right and our fathers and uncles i mean my father wasn't like that Um, i was fortunate to have the exception but our fathers uncles you know you know the bar that they hang out with they hang out at several days a week, right? And so when you start drinking, it's like you drink and you drink to get drunk. So I went then going to Germany as an exchange student after high school, where there you, you know, you have a beer with your meal, or you have a glass of wine with your meal and you learn the other side. Of it. But then, you know, after that, I came back, I went to university in South Africa, I went to university in Durban and 
now you know you don't have cash, so whenever booze booze is available, you you know you properly partake. You indulge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when I moved back to Lesotho to work, I reached the point where I needed a can of something on a Wednesday because I was getting the shakes. And then also kind of weed coming into it and starting to smoke, you know, smoke a joint or two and then moving, moving to Joburg and being out the one night and I'd been drinking and I'd smoked a couple of joints and I just, like I was having a crappy day and I just wasn't getting high and saying to somebody, listen, I need something to just raise my mood and then being given like a tablet and going and being told, ah, true and that. And that was the first time I had a XTC pill and kind of going, oh my God, like this high is very different from, you know, alcohol and weed make you not sluggish, but they, you know, they temper your mood. Now all of a sudden I'm seeing greens in a very different light. Psychedelic. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I was fortunate that I was, what, my late twenties, I was running my own business. So my party was from Thursday to Friday to Saturday night. And then Sundays I always chilled and then Monday I'm back at work. After about seven, eight months getting to the point where it was, you know, either I'm going to go to the gutter with my eyes open and I have nobody to blame or I'm going to get help. And being, I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by people who were looking for the help for me and like constantly riding me. So the moment I decided I needed help, there was somebody right there. And I've seen other people around me kind of really go deep. Whereas I guess, like, like I said, I was fortunate that I had the people literally right next to me. I mean, I went to a rehab center. My aunt took me to a rehab center because she was lecturing me about sorting myself out on a Saturday and having a very bad trip that Saturday night. And that Sunday having everybody around me going, do you know what? You need to sort yourself out and not allowing me to run away from it to literally the Sunday night going back to that center I'd gone to and going, okay, I need help. Where do I start? And so, I mean, I don't know whether it's my ancestors or the universe or whatever you feel, but literally everything that I needed at that moment helped me through it. And also that's when I started doing, that's called, I started doing the work on myself and understanding why I did certain things and how I'm perceived and therefore, so I've always been introverted but i've also grown up in spaces where when you're introverted or when you're comfortable in your own space there's something wrong with you and the start was learning that actually there's nothing wrong with me and if you have a problem with it then that's your problem it's not my problem but having to literally go through that journey and go through the missteps to get to the point where it's just like yeah i live the way that i want to live and i am who i am and i make no excuses for it Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And it's something that I've hoped to have been able to bring to the show and our listeners, because I think we don't talk about it enough. And you've been able to move through that into so many other spaces of success. And I and I guess in a true creative story, there's always a battle of some sort with self. And I think COVID-19 and the pandemic has really pushed a lot of us to having to sit with ourselves like I, I've been seeing a therapist now for coming up to I want to say two and a half years and I think there's this realization that happens in the same way that there's this constant health check with our health I, I, I think mentally it's helpful to do the same and I think for me my catalyst was becoming a mother and I had a lot of trauma with you know childbirth and things like that but I think around that though 
what I realized in in the beginning or as as I started the work as it were was that there's actually a lot of trauma in entrepreneurship there's a lot of rejection the strive the struggle to materialize your ideas creates a very interesting dynamic within yourself and even just navigating what that definition is for you you know we joked about it when you said you know you haven't worked for the last year but really there are times in entrepreneurship where regardless of whatever it is you're doing in that time it's just not happening for you and you have to then figure out another way or navigate the trough till you reach the next peak um, or till the momentum in your project comes to light and then you're now where you should be. And I think for the first time watching, I guess, the wider world navigate within themselves because now COVID has forced everyone into being at home alone. There's no escape. You can't even go out for a meal, you know, like there's no, like it's unrelenting. And then if you're a parent and then you've got, you know, your kids and perhaps if your marriage was great, fabulous. If your marriage was hanging on by thread, now you can't escape it. You know, you're having to deal with all of these things and that now coming to the fore. And and there are people who have absolutely smashed it in this period, but there's also the the large majority of people who are facing, you know, retrenchment, being furloughed or, you know, all of these different things. And us being responsible enough to talk about the fact that this is normal. It's normal to not be okay at times. It's normal to have to find yourself again. It's normal to doubt yourself. It's normal to have to find your definition and find comfort in that. So that's a really long and lengthy thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Like I've, I've always believed that, so what this pandemic did or the attached lockdown, it was an opportunity for a lot of people to figure out what it was all for, right? Which I've been lucky enough to go through and there hasn't been that big a change in my routine. So it's, it's people kind of finding that. But like you're saying, it's, I'm also learning that, yeah, sometimes it's even much for me. Regardless of how much time, I mean, I work from home. I'm in my house most of the time. I'm the perfect babysitter. When my wife and the and the girls go out, would go out partying, they just leave all the kids with me because I'd rather be home than anywhere else. Right? But it is understanding that it is a journey. And like you're saying, sometimes it's not going to be nice. Like sometimes you're going to wake up in the morning, you're just not going to feel up to it. You know, like I... Keep saying, eventually, I will go and see a therapist. I haven't seen a therapist before. You haven't? No. Stop it. So it's not even for, let's let's call it today. It's not even for what I'm dealing with today. It's realizing that in some instances, there's things that I've lived through and I've come out the other side relatively okay. But, you know, kind of going back and just sorting them out might make things a little easier. But also just having the opportunity to... Let's call it talk to somebody. I'm in a situation where the two people that were my sounding boards, the two people that I spent a lot of time kind of bouncing stuff and getting stuff out of my head with, both passed away within two years of each other. So it was my father and my best friend. So I went from having people to just like, you know, pour stuff out. And sometimes you know what you're going to do, but you just, you're going to say it anyway to not having to be my own counsel because it never actually gets out of my head. Which is hard. 
And the longer that goes, the more I go, yeah, and eventually I need to go and see somebody. You know, there's nothing wrong with seeing somebody. No, not at all. And I think especially as entrepreneurs, I, I think it's so important because if you think of what it takes to go against the grain, and, and by and large, most true entrepreneurs, right, are spending time within the world where you're walking the road less traveled pretty much a lot, especially when you are focused on solving real problems. And that takes its toll. It takes its toll on you. It takes its toll on your family life. There are sacrifices that have to be made. And at times, having the fortitude to stick to your path does take some doing. You mention or you describe yourself as an Afropolitan, which I find quite endearing. And I've had questions within the show, actually, of, you know, this whole third culture Africans and what that means. But, you know, Afropolitan is another one of those definitions that, again, you know, people sometimes question. But for you, you you've made it about purpose and within that weaved in the skill of your writing. Is there something specific in that definition that links your work thus far? Starting answer is no. But the reason why I say no, and it, it's, so it's a very interesting word, right? And my interaction with that word stems from two places. So one is the radio station, the Joburg-based radio station, Kaya FM, right? Which consider, calls itself home of the Afropolitan. And then there's a magazine called Afropolitan Magazine that's actually owned by a South African guy. And I, but I edited that magazine for about a year. So when I was at this station, what people used to say was, I'm the typical Afropolitan, right? And, and what they meant was that there's the African in me, which I embrace and which manifests in its own ways. But there's also the modern or contemporary African. There's the contemporary side of the world in terms of being able to navigate the world regardless of where you are. But at the same time, the reason why I said no is just because like you're saying, so that word has, I can't remember the name of the woman who first coined it. And ironically, she then wrote an essay later on trying to clarify what she meant, right? So for me, it's in terms of, I guess, how I've taken ownership of it is more in terms of, you know, being who I am. And who I am is is influenced by the West. It's influenced by my German heritage. It's influenced by having gone to a British school in the middle of Lesotho. It's influenced by getting to travel and interacting with the world in different ways, right? And it's influenced by having Ghanaian heritage, being basically a Musota. I mean, that's the, the passport I carry. And having been brought up in these multiple cultures and picking and choosing what makes sense for me. I believe that my ancestors are watching over me. And I believe that that chain going back time immemorial, I am another link in that chain. And at the same time, you know, I believe in science and I believe that also as Africans, we had mathematics and science and all of these things. So it's not a foreign thing that's being introduced to us. In essence, I'm just like I'm an African just trying to live through this world and take advantage of everything that's available to us. And I guess that's a very long way of saying, I guess by doing all of that, one could say that I'm an Afropolitan. It's more a, a feeling or a philosophy or a way of life than this word that you can use to kind of easily define people. Like I always love Nkrumah's quote about, you know what, I'm not African because I was born in Africa. I'm African 
because Africa was born in me. And the reason why I always love that quote is very simple. I wasn't born in Africa. Mm. I consider myself mm. yeah. African, but I wasn't born yet. And it's that. It's always this conversation around Africa as a geographical location and then Africa as a spirit or a philosophy or a people, all of that bundled together. And both are as valid and there's, there's an overlap, but there's the emotional and there's the logical. I don't know if that made any type of sense. <laughs> it, it does. It does. It does. It's, 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 essentially, the term is all about citizenship, right? Belonging. And I guess belonging within your experiences as opposed to perception. And I guess also each of us taking ownership of it and what it means to us, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about success. I think where we have a lot of conflict and tension is always when we use something and we, you know, we try to apply it across the board, right? And then if I don't agree with that definition, then our conflict becomes about the definition as opposed to what we're both trying to kind of articulate or a position that we both have that may be the same. But because we've now gone so caught up in what we're going to call it, we lose ourselves in that. Exactly. Social media as a tool, you mentioned that, mm. and where you share some of your work. Where can people find you? Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm in most spaces. But I mean, I, I guess starting off, what is my home is my site, which is kojobuffer.com. But all my stuff is basically at kojobuffer. So Twitter, it's at kojobuffer. Instagram is at, ko, at kojobuffer. Facebook is slash kojobuffer. LinkedIn as well is kojobuffer. So I kind of, I use my name for all of those different things. In the early days of MySpace, my first, I think my site was Kojo the Poet. And I was just like, you know, it's just easier to work with one's own name. Perfect. Yeah, I'm on most spaces. I have a love-hate relationship with social media to a certain extent. And you have you have your newsletter, Zebra Culture. Yeah, it's at zebraculture.substack. Where you share a lot of cool things. And your new book, Listen to Your Footsteps, is coming out when? I think in June. Hang on to your seats. We'll all be able to get it everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, it will. Um, I'm fortunate to be published. I'm being published by Pan Macmillan. So at least when you have a publisher with a presence across the world, they will ensure that it's everywhere. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for being on the show this week. I think there's a ton that you've shared and hopefully my excitement uh, managed to pull it all out. But I'm really appreciative of you making the time to be on the show this week. Well, you're biased because you're family. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, <laughs> still exciting. It takes a while to get people on the show. So and also to have them come on and be as open and as honest as you've been about your journey so far. Because, it's it, you know, everyone reads the headlines. And like you said, you know, you can easily miss that in between that there is a human being. So thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.